Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. Workspace Works podcast, Eileen, if you wouldn't mind giving us a brief introduction to yourself. Hi, everybody. I am Eileen Jennings-Brown. I am Scottish, if you can't tell from the accent. I live in Scotland, but I actually work in London. So yes, I did that commute week in, week out, lived in hotels until we all went into lockdown back in March. The organisation I work for is called the Welcome Trust and we are a philanthropic organisation. We're we're a charity first and we give away money. Last year we gave away a billion pounds. We're quite a wealthy charity. We gave away a billion pounds to help science and into research into urgent health issues. So that's what we do first and foremost. But we're also a bank and we have our endowment ourselves. And we're also a museum and a library. So we're quite an interesting organisation. But I head up a team of 65 people. My role is head of technology and we provide all the IT structure, all the IT services, applications, change, delivery and products across the whole suite. So we're very busy and we've been very busy uh, throughout the last I don't know, nine months now. Can't believe where the time has gone. That's that's me in a nutshell, really, where I am today. That's great. I actually wanted to ask you, where in Scotland are you commuting from? Well, I live in a wee town called Alloa, which is just outside Stirling. It is equidistant between Edinburgh and Glasgow, and it's just off the motorway as well. So it was actually quite tactical moving here because it meant for the commute I could actually go from any of the airports or just jump on the motorway. So I commute from usually from Edinburgh, but I do like to keep it interesting for myself because doing the same commute week in, week out, I find rather boring. So sometimes I like to drive, sometimes I would get a train, sometimes I fly, uh, sometimes I didn't go at all. In fact, I haven't been at all for the last nine months. <laughs> You know, kept it, kept it interesting. Yeah, because I used to do the commute from, from London to Edinburgh. Um, hey, so you did it in reverse then? You came up first. Which, yeah. which was great until the clocks switched, because you used to catch a 7 a.m. flight up, and then when the clock switches, a 6 a.m. flight. Oh, wow. It kills you. absolutely kills you. It's so dark as well, isn't it? I mean, it's what's the time now? So the sun is going to set here in about 15 minutes. It's quarter past three. The sun's going to set in about 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, not already. And, and that's it. And it is quite dark in the winter. But in the summertime, at 11 o'clock at night, you can go out and have a round of golf. Yes. So great. So how long did you do that commute for then, Ryan? Um, 11 months. That's quite a long time. Yeah, it wasn't every day. It wasn't every week. I, I, okay. yeah, it was a, it was a couple of times. I, don't know, I was I was helping a business up in um, in Fife. Um, yeah, just along that from Fife. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was actually quite, I, mean, I quite enjoyed it because we you know it was just outside of, of Edinburgh. It's a nice little town. You know, it had all the amenities. Um, yeah, it was, it was nice. I quite enjoyed it. Not too far from St Andrews either, if you like a bit of golf. I was going to ask you where about in Fife. So it's not far from St Andrews. That, that is a really nice town, actually. It's very pretty. Yeah, I couldn't actually tell you now. Kukardi? That's where it was. Kukardi? Yeah. There's a great comedian called, I mean, I was going to say called Billy Connolly, as if you didn't know who Billy Connolly is. <laughs> But he, go and, go and look it up on the internet, he did this sketch about Kirkcaldy and it's where linoleum comes from, but nobody can pronounce the word linoleum. I'm not going to tell you the joke, but it will have you in stitches. Go <laughs> and Kirkcaldy and linoleum and uh, listen to this, it's really funny. No, I'll go find it. I love him as a comedian, he's really good. Uh, I liked him as an actor too, um, in a couple of movies that he did. Yeah, he did. He was in a lot of the Harry Potter movies, wasn't he? Uh, not Harry Potter, but he did a couple. Uh, he did the Man Who Sued God. 
who, which yeah. Australian movie where he, his yacht got destroyed by a storm and he, and he couldn't get insurance to pay because they called it an act of God. And he <laughs> took him to court and then he did another one which was called um, Big Joe. I've seen that one. He's, um, he's, he, he's a florist and he basically, you know, lives his life as a florist and he's pretty chilled and stuff. And he gets mis, mis, um, mis they confuse him with a big, with big Joe, the assassin, who's a mobster. Okay. And they, he walks around, everyone thinks he's this mobster, but meanwhile, he's, he's just this florist. And it turns out his brother has used his nickname as big Joe to be this mob, to be this, this assassin. Okay, that's and, and he sorts it all out because he, he appears and it's just, it's really well done. Yeah, I'm, I might go look that up actually. Big Joe, I haven't heard of it, but it does sound quite funny. So thanks for the recommendation. No, no problem. I've always got something in my head that's, that's worth sharing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so this is one of the questions. Then. So, so what does the digital workspace mean? I mean, you've, you've mentioned quite a few different avenues for a business. I would think there would be quite a few different flavours, um, you know, being a museum or a bank or that you'd have to contend with getting people to work, being able to work? Yeah, well, so I love the term digital workspace. And I actually think that Welcome is a digital organisation. We do 95% of our work online. I think the challenge for any or for many organizations out there is actually recognizing that they are a digital workspace. And so Wellcome does think that we are a charity first and we give this money away. We help science and research and so on and so forth. But the reality is that you can't do that without the digital technology and without the platforms to communicate whatever your message is and without all these products and tools that help people be productive and manage performance. So I'm a big fan of helping organizations and businesses understand and recognize you're a digital organization first. You want to create a digital workspace environment for your staff and then you happen to be a bank or you happen to be a museum. I realise in museum it's, 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 uh, it's a bit harder because people come in and they like to touch stuff. It's a bit more tactile. But actually in our museum, we have we use digital to help enhance the experience of coming into the museum. So we have exhibitions and we've got an AV team and the AV team make, make um, do the lighting and all the video in order to make whatever the artifacts are really stand out and be able to tell their story. So for me, a digital workspace, to answer your question, because I realise I've gone off on one, I, really, I, I just like the term, I, I like people to try and think about, I'm a digital this or that, you know, I'm pointing left, I'm pointing right, and then... And so what, how does that then affect me? To answer your question, what uh, does a digital workspace mean to me? I actually think it's about simplification. It's about having the boring tasks that you would otherwise not enjoy doing have been done for you through automation, for example. And being able to connect and communicate and have experiences that are different to an experience that you may have if you were to physically be in a location. Actually, you can enhance a physical experience through digital as well. So so it's quite a broad answer. (laughs) Pick pick from that the one that resonates. Well, I I think what you said at the beginning was actually quite quite nice in the way that you, you sort of positioned it as a platform of platforms with vertical, I don't want to say solutions, because that almost sounds very marketing spiel. But but as you get more specific, as you move away from the platform to be more specific, you know, you do get a tower, a more sharp edge. Um, where you say something like in a museum, it's more tactile. So you might have AR and VR applied to do something, um, where you wouldn't have that necessarily for an office worker who's working with spreadsheets. That's right, yeah. But, we, but then I would like to think that for somebody who works with spreadsheets, if they wanted, we could use digital to try and make that really interesting for them. Instead of, and I'm a bit, a bit more like an experience, you, maybe we could use augmentation or virtual reality in order to try and make that interesting and automate some of the boring stuff. 
So, yeah, and then you, you look at the side where the bank is, we call it a bank, we just manage our own investment, but actually our own portfolio, but actually all of that is done through digital technology. They can't do it without having the Bloombergs and the JP Morgans and all of this technology around them to even have that data visible to them so they can make the decisions. So I'm, I'm not sure that people instantly recognise how much they depend on uh, digital and therefore surround themselves with a digital workspace in order to do their jobs and it leaches into the home you know you can you can get all of this tech in your house the internet of things you can control your washing machine from the train you can turn your lights on from someone else's house you can you know the internet of things digital workspace is beyond just a workspace it's actually a digital way of life yeah i think you're so right there when that that what it's, what was previously for some people completely separate environments or separate ecosystems has now blended completely. So it's that integrated working. Yeah. Um, what, what digital workspace mean for you then? Yeah, I'm very similar to what you said. I, I, to me, it's it's how do you get your work done using whatever tools, technology, and sometimes it's not even the, the technology as in the sense of of electronic technology, but it could be um, the right. Uh, writing pad to to take your notes on that you can take a picture of that can go into your your filing system digitally or um you know we, we're traveling back to south africa for two months so i'm packing my bag right now and i've packed my virtual office bag now which has now become my go bag and um you know it's, it's those things that are that are not necessarily technology based but they are part of my digital working um kit if you like so anywhere that gets me to be able to do my work in context that's 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 digital workspace um, do you find that you're being forced down a path to have to adopt a, a digital product or some piece of technology because actually that's the only choice that's left open to you do you mean well give me some context to that question so I don't know, a really good example actually is buying your, um, taxing your car. Yeah. You can't go into the post office anymore and yeah. buy, buy the car tax. You can only do it online. The interesting thing about that is that that alienated an entire gender, or sorry, not gender, an entire demograph of individuals who weren't digitally capable. So, so they, they almost, they had no choice. Yeah. To have digital because that was the only way they could achieve the outcome that they wanted. Are you finding that for you? It's funny you give that example because that's exactly the example I saw last Sunday at the post office. And, and it wasn't an old person who was complaining. It was a 25-year-old that was literally losing his marbles. Wow. Because he didn't want to go online to do his car tax. His dad, his dad had helped him fill in the form. And I, I don't know, maybe he was, you know, they had a disability or something, but... He just could not get the fact that the post office didn't do it anymore and it was easy to do it online. And it literally, I mean, I did it the other day, it's not, not difficult. Um, but he would not get past this thing that he filled in a form and they should just take the form and pay and take his money. And um, it, it got ugly, uh, ugly as British people can get. Um, but it, but it, is, it is that example. And, and yes, I think to, to some extent that is one of the problems with what people see as digital. They see it often as a restrictive mechanism as opposed to an enablement mechanism. Yeah, it should enhance, shouldn't it? It should enhance the thing that you're trying to do. Yeah. But sometimes perhaps we've taken it too far and it, and then to your point, it has made it uh, quite restrictive. Yeah, and, and my favourite example is the Excel problem. You know, you, you have someone from the business that's built a, a workbook full of macros and, and whatever it is to do some piece of work. They've automated it. They've gone and learned how to use macros and Excel calculations and formulas and stuff. And that Excel spreadsheet, which was one person and automating their lives and making it easier, has now become the team's way of doing their work. Yeah. So it's because it's saving them time, inverted commas, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But at some point that becomes the backbone of that, that business unit. And someone decides, oh, well, we need to turn this into an application. And you spend how much time trying to figure out what the application is. And, and all the flexibility that Excel offers has to get taken away to some extent when you build that application and you systematize it. Um, and often what ends up being the output isn't what the people that were using it wanted because they, was, they actually quite enjoyed that it was an Excel and they could just add a new sheet when they wanted to and add more formulas or manipulate the formulas and, and all that stuff that sits behind code. Actually, they didn't want that. Yeah. Um, 
It's so true, actually. Yeah, it's, and and these things just morph. Don't the other people come along? They take ownership. It becomes a thing it was never intended to be when it you know first came to life. And yes, listen to us, sleep yeah. digital, digital. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just thinking about we had a, we had a, pro, a process at UBS called um, end user applications, which was the process where you had to register if you built yourself your own application. So if you used if you used Excel or, or something like that, it, it was a way of, of tracking down all these things. Not so much to remove them, but just to, just to know about them. Yeah, that's quite clever, actually. It, it makes people feel empowered and like they have autonomy. But uh, Big Brother's actually watching. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't, I don't think you got that feeling. Because, okay. you know, the minute you put yourself on the radar, this is what all these, these things do. The minute you're on the radar, then every year you have to go through a certification process, which means now you have another thing you have to do beyond your day job to fit in. So I don't think it was, it was ever well received. But from my point of view, because I used to write, obviously, little applications to do things. Yeah. Very so often you would see this thing pop up and you're like, oh, no, I want to add Because, you know, obviously we were detecting all the EXEs that were running on, in the bank. Yeah, right. and you get you get sort of flagged for running exes that that weren't belonging to an application. Um, and you'd have to put it into the inventory system. Yeah, that shadow IT. Yeah, yeah, yeah shadow IT. Uh, that's that's a good name. That, that's the best name for it. Yeah, I just um, some problem shadow IT. Sometimes you have to embrace it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the trend I've seen is that more and more it's um, realizing, especially with SaaS, that people are going to adopt, you know, these technologies and businesses moving faster. So um, it's not necessarily, you know, shadow IT kind of sounds like a shady thing that people are doing to get around IT. But I think a lot of the time it's just um, technology is so easy for anyone to run with these days and people want to move fast. So. I think um, you make a good point there, actually. That's so true. And that's what we see as well. And so we try and embrace this by letting people find their own products that actually will serve the purpose that they need it to. I mean, they're experts they're, in terms of what their role is. They know what works for them. Our role is then to try and make sure it's secure, it's compliant, it fits with the overall strategy, the architecture. There's not duplication of products who are, that are doing all the same thing. So the role of uh, is changing because being able to look after a product yourself is actually becoming easier for the individual. And the role of IT is changing as a result. And it's just whether IT can keep up with that. Yeah, I think I think that last phrase is the key point there, it's keeping up, because often IT is so bogged down with so many projects, and you mentioned transformation projects, and then a business wants to do something, they want to pivot, they need to go into a new market or something like that, and they need to, I don't know, have a new CRM or something like that for that space, and IT can't just, you know, drop everything and put a team on that. Um, and often it is just a credit card transaction, they go and sign up for some trial of that CRM and it's, you know, on their corporate, corporate card. And they start using it for a couple of months and then somehow that gets back into IT that there's another application to worry about. And then they find out that that thing's got, as you say, security problems or, or thankfully it doesn't. Um, and then you gotta get the data in and out as well because you wanna use it in other parts of the business. Yeah, yeah, it just, it just finds itself as part of the ecosystem surreptitiously until somebody in IT or security stumbles upon it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting days. And that, everybody, is the digital workplace today. <laughs> to, back to that question, I'd like to add to the list of what it means to me is complex. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well a level of complexity to deliver it, but hopefully a simple experience to use it. Oh, I like that. You should, you should uh, get that trademarked or quoted or whatever. Make a bumper sticker, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's like, well, I always think of that iceberg, the iceberg with all the stuff below the, the waterline, and that's, that's you know, trying to deliver a VDI solution, but the user only cares about when they log in in the morning, they've got a screen that logs them in, and they've got their desktop, and they can work, and then they don't care about all the stuff that we think is important around, you know, uh, cloned images that are on, on the latest build, the latest patches, and we stream down you know, 20 gigs of applications to them, and all their data is connected using, you know, app volumes and app stacks and all that. They don't care about that stuff. They just care that it works. That's right. right. It's the what they're interested in. Yeah. You know, 
they cared about it. They'd work in IT. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Do you, I mean, in, 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 because you mentioned 65 people, but what, what is the user base that you have to look after? So there's about 1,200 people. Okay. And they're all, we're all pretty much under one roof. So when I say that we have a bank, we are a charity and we have a museum, all of that's actually under the same roof, which does add its own complexities. And I think the interesting thing about all of this is that that's three different industries and it attracts three different kinds of people. Mm. And for the team, it does, not only is the technology um, complex because of the nuances those different uh, user types, but then the cultures that come with it because you have creative types who do exhibitions and actually meet and greet visitors into the museum, but then you've got people who come from a banking background or an investment background and they have very specific standards and they're used to regulations and authority. And um, so that for the team makes it interesting over and above just the technology complexities that they have. So there's 65 in my team, but actually the, I work in what's called the digital technology division. And there's about 100 of us in the whole division, but my team, so we do digital as well. We do user experience, we've got some EAs, we've got, we uh, dabble with uh, a PMO, but it's my team doing all of this. You know, if you want to be able to work, then it's my team, they're going to make that happen for you. And if you want to have a great experience whilst you're working, then it's my team that are going to facilitate that for you. Um, if it's broken, we're going to fix it for you and we're going to change it and transform it. So one of the things, uh, we touched on transformation, one of the things that we did over the summer was we changed welcome from a .ac.uk domain extension to .org which helps with the welcome strategy, which got launched in October. So we have a new strategy that's gone out into society, which is about tackling emergent, um, urgent health issues around climate, around mental health. Uh, so by changing ourselves to a .org, it enables welcome to be recognised as we are, we have a global voice, we're on the global platform. And that was the thing that we did over the summer. We changed our domain name as well. So it's busy times. It's easy to do that. You just, just flick a switch. <laughs> that was the interesting thing about the whole project because about a year ago we said, we put our finger in the air, we went, okay, to change this, we think it's going to cost this amount of money and it's going to take us 18 months. But we didn't actually know at that point in time and it was really just to secure the, the budget and to actually help everybody realise that once we start this, we're not going to stop this and we're going to change every single application, everything that everyone logs into, every interdependency, every security certificate, anything that has .ac.uk extension will change to .org and we need to now go off and discover what that actually takes. But you're absolutely right, when it came down to it, and the way and the narrative that we gave the organisation, it was we're going to flick the switch on the 1st of September. We're going to flick the switch on email on the 1st of December. And we literally just talked about it like it was a really simple thing. In the background, we were doing all of this investigating to make sure that we weren't going to break a thing. We weren't going to lose out on some cost savings we had somewhere as a result of being recognised as an academic institution you know, because of some subscription that we had to things. So there was a lot of research that had to be done. Yeah. And actually, about two years ago, we did, a, we did a PR exercise and we did rebrand from Welcome Trust to Welcome. So we had the great support of our communications team who actually helped the rest of Welcome understand that this was just the technology catching up with the rebrand that we did two years ago. So it could have been really difficult, but the narrative and the support of our comms actually made it simpler. We're not out of the woods yet. We still have some of the other background work that we've got to do, changing applications and interdependencies. But as far as everyone's concerned, welcome is welcome.org. Email addresses are, the, the, like the physical, the bit that you see is all .org. The stuff in the background, we're still doing work on that. Yeah, and I think there's a level of things you, you have to do before you switch and there's things you can always mop up at the end. 
Agreed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got multiple websites, and so we've, we've got to we've got to try and time it all as well. Timing, I think, was critical, and making sure that if we're going to switch this website, we switch them all at the same time, and and the content within it. So if there's a reference to Welcome.uk, somebody's got to go in and do all of that. There's actually quite a lot involved in the planning. But it is literally, to your point, it's just flicking a switch. It is easy. <laughs> did you run um, in parallel with, with the old domain just in case, or did you, have to, did you have to turn it off to see things were working? Um, no, no, we didn't have to do that. We've still got the old domain up and running, actually. We, or the domain name is still running because the change itself, because of all the background changes that we're having to do, we have to keep that running. And the message may not have got out there to everybody that actually if you want to email us on AC UK, it won't arrive. We'll probably keep that running for quite a few years as well because mm -hmm. of oh, maybe some legalities and contracts and stuff, what, what have you. Yeah. So running. But the great news is... Globally, we are seen as a .org UK, a .org UK, a .org, .org. and helps with the voice that we want the rest of the world to understand that we have. Oh, great. You mentioned something about experience, and I wanted to sort of dig into that. I mean, how has that, I mean, monitoring and user experience, I mean, that's obviously different when they're all in the office to now being remote. Wow. Well, the great thing is that we, as a, oh, where do I start? Today, we are getting our highest net promoter scores in terms of the support and the service that staff have. And we've been getting them consistently since we left the building in March. I think the fact that the team did such a great job of getting everyone decanted out of the building and then providing the support and putting a couple of new processes in place and what have you, and then just riding that wave all across the summer by being there and being incredibly responsive and proactive, actually it got the team from the back foot to the front foot. So there's a lot of positive feelings towards the service desk and towards the team in terms of the experience that, that they have. I think in terms of monitoring it, we're actually changing some of the underlying technology that we use so that we can be more proactive in monitoring the people monitoring the experience that people have with the technology by monitoring the technology itself. So one of the things that I've asked the team for is a digital experience score. Now there's products mm -hmm. out there that will tell you a digital experience score, but I've asked them to expand on that and think about we need to include our net promoter score. We need to include the customer feedback. We need to include whether we're responding to SLAs or not. On top of this score that the computers tell us in terms of how it's performing and whether applications are responsive. So I've asked them to go away and think about a way to combine all of that so we can get one score for every single person and we can we can then prioritise those that have the greatest needs. One of the things I'd also like to include into that is accessibility and to understand what is the experience for accessibility with all of our products so we can try and drive improvements in that. Ideally, we, did, we would do accessibility by design we're not that mature yet or sophisticated, but we talk in this way in order to put it at the forefront of our minds. So it's in our common language. And, you know, one of the questions we'll always say is, is that inclusive for everybody? And if it's not, then we have to start from it being inclusive for everyone uh, and then build it out from there. So to answer your question about monitoring the experience of everyone, fantastic job by the team, best net promoter scores ever. But we have a lot of work to do in order to understand at this experience score level, what does that actually mean? So we're putting tech in place. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, just, I, I just want to jump in here because full disclosure. So I work, this is the space that I work in. I work for a digital experience monitoring vendor. Uh, but you're so right about the need to combine the qualitative with the quantitative. That's something that we built into our product and we talk about all the time. But um, and as well, the leading analyst firms, you know, covering this area, talk about the importance of, you know, you not only need to understand the performance and how the technology is being used to create that technology experience score, but also have qualitative feedback mechanism. So the NPS score that you noted is a great example of that, but you know, whether it's surveying um, 
you know, there's different ways to do it, adding in chatbots, you know, there's different mechanisms, but having both the voice of the user and how they perceive their experience and the actual technology objective experience, both of those sides need to be incorporated to ultimately really make um, digital experience initiatives, I think, successful. Yeah, you make a good point. And it's nice to know that I'm not the only one that thinks like that. Um, and they were not trying to, to invent something that is that would just be harder to come up with. So it sounds like there's lots of companies out there where we can leverage their experiences and their knowledge to help us get the answers that we're looking for. I mean, ideally, the thing that uh, the question that I commonly ask the team is, what is it that we need to shift the dial on? and then go away and reverse engineer all the things that make up that one thing that we need to shift the dial on. And that's what we need to be looking at. So we have some great conversations in the team about that. And we have very different opinions about what we need to shift the dial on. But mm -hmm. your point, actually, yeah, I think if there's other organizations out there who are, who are doing this, um, providing a, a holistic experience and a way in order to understand that, then I'm, I'd love to talk to them. <laughs> I'd love to learn. Yeah, I just love it. You're, you're just, you're explaining exactly what this, I mean, I'm not trying to sell you on our tool or anything, but you're just explain. you're like, you're sending the same message back to me, which is the problem, the exact problem that this kind of tool is uh, meant to solve. So, I mean, it's great that, um, I think that uh, I think more and more organizations are realizing the need to, you know, prioritize digital experience. I think a few years ago, it wasn't so top of mind, but um, definitely seeing. Well, well, that was what I was going to ask. Sort of follow up question is: is have you have you seen in your organization as welcome as, as, as that becomes a, has become a priority topic? Whereas before it was kind of a gripe. Everyone had a gripe about it, but no one really wanted to prioritize any funding to do anything about it. If that makes sense. Yeah, and that's such a good question. I, I think. Yes, we. It is very important to us, but we 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 talk about outcomes, and we recognise that to get the outcome, you need all of the moving parts in order to, to get the outcome that you're looking for. The the welcome as an organisation have a very open mind, and the appetite is there to invest if that what it takes to get the right answers that we're looking for. Don't think I'm really answering your question, though, Ryan. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm taking it down another path. No, well, the reason why I ask it that way is that, that you know, I've worked in, in two large organizations where I've been very lucky that at, at a very high level, there's been a focus on that. So so when I moved to the UK, I worked for, for a large American bank, and the CIO, that was CTO, I think it was at the time, was driving this is as one of the key agendas that we had to we had to know what the end user's experience was at all times and be able to not only know what they were doing and this was sort of another question i was going to ask you as well we needed to proactively repair any issues with their experience now what, what does that proactiveness mean does that mean clearing out disk space when they've run out of disk when they're clearing out that temporary files and run out of disk space does that mean stopping applications that are using too many resources because you're on a, a virtual infrastructure or whatever it may be um, to, to another organization where it was the number one item in, a, in, a, in an end user survey to say that their performance of their desktop was affecting their ability to work and they need this fixed to spin up a project that ran and focused on that. Um, yeah, so you were going to say something. So, yeah, I mean, well, we do have that. We do have a focus. On, so we do have a focus on the experience. We look at the support being great. But we also look at if the tech, the technology being fit for purpose, which in itself then becomes about the experience because fit, fit for purpose is subjective. And then we have, you know, every organization will be familiar with this. It's about having VIPs who have different expectations about the performance and the experience they have with their equipment. And so, yes, in certain areas, we do have to have a higher focus and priority on making sure those kinds of individuals get the experience that they need. In particular, I'm thinking about those who work in our investments division in the bank, and that's because all of us are here to protect the endowment. We're all here to make sure Wellcome has the money so that we can then give that away into research 
for science and health. So we do have to prioritise those individuals. Yeah, and, and we do see it. So there is a focus on it, yes. But I think for us, we call it uh, making sure it's fit for purpose. Yeah. And understanding what your perception of fit for purpose is so that we give the, them the right and the most appropriate experience. Yeah. Yeah, there's... there's um I've seen it in organisations where it's it's things like having the right data provided to you so that you can order the right hardware for the person. So they don't just get the, the generic laptop that was left on the shelf and it's been rebuilt and, you know, they just get it. It's knowing what the job role that they're going into needs as an average. Um, so they get, you know, the right spec laptop or they go straight to a Citrix environment or to a VDI environment or whatever it is, depending on what they do. Um, so yeah, I can definitely see where you guys are going. I mean, going back to your supporting of users, is that is that um, manual, or do you have some level of, of automation involved there as well? So sort of AI ops that's that's very buzzwordy now. It's rather manual, if I'm honest. Um, the culture of one that they actually like that human interaction. Yeah. So the only digital aspects for the support really is people can log tickets themselves so they can report issues themselves through uh, we use a tool most organizations do but then behind sitting behind that we have somebody that picks that up and then makes a phone call and then remotes onto the machine in much the traditional way we don't really have self-healing tech yet but with the new products that we're rolling out, we will be able to introduce that. And we will, you know, even simple tasks like the one of the products that is proactive and identifies, uh, um, I don't know, a, a certain critical failure somewhere, it'll just reboot the machine and it'll just do it automatically, not recognize that. Instead of the whole phone call, I've got a problem, can you help me type thing? So it is quite... It's quite manual at the moment. I'm really looking forward to it being a, bit, a lot more automatic, though. And even doing things like using chatbots, I can't wait for the team to benefit from having the chatbot in place. Ideally, the team will be able to focus on really interesting things as a result of some of these more mundane tasks being picked up through through automation and through the technology, through self-healing technology. So yeah. that's, where we, that's where we're headed with that. That's an exciting space, and it's one of those spaces that never ends. There's always there's always something to to drill into to to really improve. I mean, rebooting machines. I mean, it's such a silly thing, but but there is definitely data that'll show you if you reboot a machine every two weeks, Windows machine specifically, uh, you'll see performance improvements. Um, yeah, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's something so simple, and yet most people crack that joke about you know, have you rebooted it? A reboot fixes ninety percent of problems, but it's true. <laughs> But, mm-hmm. but before, when was the last time you all rebooted your machines? Well, well mine is automated, so it's every two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Something you yourself, I, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, and I had to. Uh, but if yeah, I mean, one of one of my gripes at the moment is is the move from Windows Seven to Windows Ten, and and how bad an experience Windows Ten actually is. Okay. Uh, compared to Windows Seven, so uh, I mean, my background for the last sort of eight years has been desktop engineering. Um, or at least a good part of that, and, and looking at this data and, and trying to get it working, getting the platform working at least. And Windows 7, in comparison, was actually a pretty good operating system. It actually was very, very stable. Uh, Windows 10, not so much. It's getting better, but, but yeah. I, I, I remember when, you might be too young, do you remember Windows ME? So yeah. It was the intermediate between 98 and 2000. I actually really liked Windows ME, yeah. even, even though it was pretty garbage and it was just Windows 98 with a new front end. Yeah. I actually quite liked it. I made the move from Windows to Mac about five years ago. And uh, for a long time, I would then run a virtual instance of Windows on my MacBook yeah. uh, in order to do my job. But I... Once I moved to Mac, I don't think I could go back to Windows. Yeah, no, I, I'm in that exact position right now. So so I've always used Windows because of, of work and, and most enterprises are Windows-based. But actually the conundrum I'm dealing with now is do I go Mac completely? Do I go to a Linux distro, which is what I'm testing out at the moment, because I, I kind of want to do something 
not just do everything Mac straight away. Yeah. But I don't see myself staying on Windows. No, no. What about you, Heather? Um, I guess I'm not that picky of a user, but I use I use Windows 10 for work and Mac for everything else. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I guess I wanted to go back to automation just for a second because there was a recent story I heard of one of our customers, and I don't know, can't remember all the exact details, so I'm sure I'm not gonna tell all the all the juicy details. But when they are moving their users to remote they they had had some portion of their user base i think i, I want to say it was like 10k users or something like that some portion was already remote um so they had I, I think some sort of virtual desktop infrastructure to make that possible um so they basically were going to when they had to move everybody else remote duplicate whatever they were doing um and for, for some reason they had to, they were doing like, they spent like four weeks doing manual disk cleanup, you know, three times a day, their team was doing some sort of like disk clean thing. And then now they, now they realized they could have set up a, you know, a, a disk clean script that would detect this. And then, you know, it would take them five minutes to set up the script. And then none of that manual work would need to happen over those four weeks of pain. So I think to your point about like getting to more interesting work and not having to repeat those same low level tasks again and again, it can get super painful uh, depending on the scenario. You, you actually point out a, a, an interesting thing. So I had a very similar story. Uh, we had 10,000 VDIs, uh, status, um, how do you call them? Not dynamic, um, static VDIs. So, so they get uh, stateful. So they keep this state and you shut them down to bring them back up again. Persistent. Persistent, yeah. So I forget what the word was. And the, the, this, this is for an outsourced development center in one of the sort of cheaper locations. And there was a huge, huge issue with their productivity because these guys couldn't actually function. And, and there was this, this, the problem with disk space all the time. And we deployed our, our demo product and we could just, you know, the alarms just fired off all day long, running out of disk space, running out of disk space, running out of space. Now, the, the, the old approach from the operations guys was just to um, do the disk cleanup uh, or to provision another machine. So you end up with these users with more than one VDI. And I'm not saying, you know, completely another 10,000, but there'd be another three or 4,000 that were provisioned. But no one ever took a step back because I didn't I probably never had the data to take that that overarching view and actually realize that the, the, the C drive they provisioned was too small for all the applications they were deploying. So they didn't so that, that design problem was never fixed. So the perpetuating problem cost more and more. And, and the business was was forking out for more infrastructure all the time because they were told it was an infrastructure problem. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, it was actually a, they had more than enough capacity at the infrastructure level. They just didn't have the design right. And the reason why the infrastructure kept getting used up obviously was because of the, the pre-provisioning. So, so sometimes just having the data, not even the automation is important. And being able to interpret it and, and you know, use it, I'd say, but a common sense, but common sense isn't always common um, to fix the core problem, which is the design sometimes. Yeah, I can imagine that we've all got a few horror stories to tell about things that we've seen in our time. I've, I've seen it where we've had systems where it's actually using the drive space as memory because, because there's not enough memory at it. But it took about two years to get to the bottom of the problem because it was hidden. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, uh, and you just end up chucking resources well, at it and actually you never fix the problem because the problem is in the design. Yeah. Well, I mean, this this environment exactly the exact same problem. The, the person who designed it wasn't an, an engineer in, in the nicest way. So the users were given a, a one core, one to two gigs of RAM to run a platform that needed a minimum of one core and four gigs of RAM. You know, and you're sort of going, well, how? And just because that you could, just because it works doesn't mean it's productive. You know, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So so it happens a lot. It does. Yeah. Sometimes the constraints are as a result of budget. I mean, let's be honest, sometimes they just don't want to spend the money. And and it could be due to lack of understanding, which is probably around the skills and capability, because 10 years ago, that was new tech. And yeah. now, now it's old tech. Yeah. People are doing storage in very different ways and provisioning laptops in very different ways and spinning up virtual environments in very different ways. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, the other point, the other problem here is you you have the 
the operation, operational guys were designing this, which means they, they, they're building something on the fly while they sort of fly the airplane, they're building the airplane, whilst they are dealing with an issue somewhere else as well. So it's probably not getting the, the proper diligence or the, or the, or the, or the an unfatigued eye, let's say. Yeah. Which, which, which perpetuates a problem. So it happens, you know. How, how many times have you seen it where somebody builds something as a test environment and suddenly that is the production <laughs> and you can't undo yeah. it? People are using it live. I, I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm a bit of a grammar school teacher. I say, when you say prototype, this is what it means. When you say proof of concept, this is what it means. When you say you're building a minimum viable product, this is what it means. And none of those things necessarily mean that it stays on forever. That's right, yeah. I mean, we had a thing recently where, when I say recently, it's about eight months ago or so, but we were trying to figure out what systems we had where. And so we came to the conclusion that we were just going to turn stuff off and see who complains. And we had an instance where the Smithsonian Museum in America contacted us because they'd been using one of our images on one of the websites that we didn't even look after. They'd been using the image and it wasn't until we turned it off here that we found out that somebody over there was actually using it. And we hadn't been seeing this thing for years. Yeah, legacy, legacy, the pain of legacy technology. Um, which I, I, I read um, Mark Chillingworth's article about uh, what, the work you're doing at Welcome. Um, and he was a recent guest on the show. Actually, I don't know if that's kind of how this connection got made or if that's a happy yes. circumstance. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, but I, I, I got from, I gathered from that, you know, being, a, you know, Welcome having been around for so long. And it sounds like you've been involved in a lot of the modernization work there, but I'm sure there's a lot of, legacy stuff so i love the just turning it off and waiting to see who screams because sometimes you just you know unless i mean you can you know monitor it to some extent but yeah yeah and that was i mean that's just one example of many and we do have i mean when i came along we had something like i don't know 700 applications and we've had a drive to try and get that down who needs 700 applications that's one per person almost i mean that's nuts so, pretty common though to have huge application portfolios like that yeah. yeah you're absolutely right and so sometimes you just got to turn it off and see who complains and discover nobody does so uh, be bold i would say if anybody's looking for advice be bold just do it what's the worst that can happen so we yeah i mean we went through an exercise we had four and a half thousand applications that had to be cleaned up and, and one of the lines of businesses was adamant that they needed a certain version of Adobe um, Writer. And I think the price tag was something silly like, and I'm guesstimating the number, let's say it was two grand a license for, for 1,400 users or something like that. So the price tag, that was in the millions. And we had to prove to them with data that they didn't actually need it, but they still were adamant they needed it. So when they when we put it we put it out and we got we deployed it and stuff and then and, and it, it ended up circling back when they got the bill that no one was using it but they were getting this bill because it was you know instead of IT picking up the bill and getting divided by the total user base it was actually direct charging that and all of a sudden they didn't need that license anymore they just Adobe all Adobe Reader was fine in fact you know using the browser now to read a PDF was also fine um, yeah Acrobat versus Reader yeah most people don't need Acrobat yeah. That's, just, but, that's it, but that's education through, through, through information. Yeah, I'm a believer in, uh, in the, like, talking about people thinking that they need to use a product. Sometimes a technique that I adopt, if I want to move people away from a product, is I try and make access to the, the one that I don't want them to use or we don't want them to use harder. Yeah. And so this feeds into the whole behavior science of people and people will always take the easiest path. And so, you know, we're trying to help staff, uh, staff across Welcome think more about doing more self-service and logging their own incidents instead of email or phone calls. And so yeah, I'm toying with the idea and talking to the team about let's just make it really hard to phone us. 
and you have to wait on that call for 20 minutes before someone answers it because eventually they will just want to log a ticket themselves. But actually the reality is that I'd see our net promoter score plummet before it went back up. And I don't know that we're quite ready with our self-service piece to say, look how fantastic and easy this is. But it is a technique that is worth adopting is try and make a thing harder that you want people to stop using or stop doing. And they'll they'll just naturally gravitate towards the easier thing. So so on that line, we were there's two places where I worked where we where we did this. If you were in technology, you couldn't use the voice um, routes to log a ticket. So you had to use technology that we, we put in place. So we had chatbots and in and in one place we had a, an easy taskbar item that you could just create a ticket with. Um, and the whole thing was to drive people to using those things, not not so much because it was besides cheaper on the actual ticket, but also the more people were typing and the more we were giving them options to select, the more we could do analysis and bring in things like natural language processing or um, pattern recognition at least to try and do self-service. Um, the, the other thing which we did was, or we thought about doing at least, was if you gave that, those, those one to 10 checks that you would do, which you'd normally pay a level zero resource to do, you make that something that that user does themselves. So have you rebooted your machine? Have you um, closed all the windows? Whatever it is, um, you know, all those things. And if they did those things, then they were fast-tracked to talk to somebody. And if they didn't do those things, then they would go in the, the normal queue. So white glove service versus the sort of second-class citizen service, if you like, as um, one option. Um, yeah, I think you're going to run for time. So do you, want to do you want to tie up? Do you want to do a part two to this? or? Yeah, I'm happy to do a part two. Right. Yeah, I've just seen the time and I realise that I've got, um, we're in the process of getting a new Unify comm system. And so we, but we're actually, I'm trying to tie the whole thing into our meeting room system, telephony, the messaging platforms, we use Teams, we use Slack, It's uh, we use lots of different VC systems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Trying to do something very unified. And I have the first supplier demo at four o'clock. No problem. Just before we uh, tie up, we usually cap off just giving the guests an opportunity to share, you know, if, if you have any social media or anything where you want people to be able to find you and connect with you. Um, if you want to share that with our with our guests, if you're interested no, in definitely. that. Definitely. Um, what you, so I, I, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter is EJB underscore sunshine. And I am on LinkedIn. So and those are really the only two social media channels I'm on. I'm on Facebook, but I don't use it. I, yeah. That's, that's pretty common. <laughs> cool. Well, see if I can enjoy your, your demo. Thanks very much. I look forward to speaking to you both very soon then. Yes, great. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's great. It's great. That's great. Thanks, great. Let's do a part two. Thanks very much. Speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.